ladies and gents, thank you for tuning into another episode of our Two Scientists podcast. Our guest this evening is uh, a rather well-followed chap in um, social media circles, a chap called Randy Olson. Hey there, happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, admittedly, you came here for Moffat and we nabbed you for our own nefarious purposes. But yeah, it might have been the other way around. <laughs> um, so usually the way we start off our uh, podcast recording is by asking our guest where they studied and the kind of things that they did and how it led them to do the work they're currently doing. Sure, yeah. Um, so I actually started my studies uh, about an hour and a half down the road from here um, in, at the University of Central Florida, um, where I sort of ambled into a computer science degree. I um, really had no idea what I wanted to study when I, when I started my bachelor's degree. And so I, I knew I liked computers, I knew I, I like games, I think, and so computer science sounded about the right thing. Um, and then eventually I ambled into an um, AI research project in my last year, um, sort of evolving controllers for uh, robots, for two-legged robots. And so that was, that was an interesting project, it got me interested in AI. And so from there uh, I, went to, I applied and got accepted to grad school at Michigan State. Um, which was quite a transition in terms of personal life because, you know, I grew up for the most part in Florida where it's hot, where it's humid, and you don't worry about snow. And then suddenly I was shoveling snow every, every winter. Um, so yeah, so at Michigan State I, I was generally interested in, in taking this idea of using evolution to evolve controllers for things and how can we use that to study biological phenomena, things like that. Um, and then I think after my first winter um, in Michigan, I decided that I'm not a winter guy. <laughs> and so that really motivated me to quickly graduate as, as quickly as I could. So um, after four years of studying sort of the evolution of collective behavior and why do, you know, why do animals live in groups? Why do we work together as groups? Um, I, I decided to change it up after that. And I went to um, Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, to take the skills that I had learned about evolutionary computation and machine learning and apply them to a completely different domain um, in, the, in the biomedical sciences. Um, and, and that was largely because, I mean, th th there didn't seem to be much prospect in terms of funding and everything for my graduate studies research, um, which is what I hear from talking to a lot of people who graduated with their PhD. <laughs> and so that's why I you know, did a complete about-face and went into... Um, the, the biomedical field, which admittedly has been much more interesting as well. Um, so now I'm um, using my evolutionary computation skills to sort of optimize machine learning algorithms for biomedical applications, and, and that has a whole wide range of, of um, uh, meanings, I suppose. Obviously, you'll have, most researchers have a very specific project that you're working on. So within the biomedical sciences, do you have a disease or a biological system you're interested in? And how do you go about studying that? Yeah, um, so I don't, I don't have a particular d disease per se. I'm, I'm more of a, a tool building scientist, I guess mm -hmm. you can say. Um, so I'm, I, it, it turned out, I, I found out after spending four years of my life working on a PhD doing basic science, I found out I actually really enjoy building tools to enable people to do better science themselves. Um, so that's what I've been doing for the past year or so, is I've been working on a tool that helps uh, automate this, this idea called machine learning, which allows computers to learn 
from uh, data on their own and, and sort of help people reason about the data that they're seeing mm -hmm. from their experiments. Okay. So one of the things I found in amongst the, the various descriptions you have of yourself on the internet, so all scientists deal with data, but what's a data scientist? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, the, the way I interpret it, at least when I see when I see that someone says that they're a data scientist, that to me that means that they're more into the analysis, into the machine learning. They're you know they they're less likely to be specialized in one niche field or one particular, you know, for example, disease or one particular model system or anything like that, they're more likely to be focused on, you know, how do we generally study data? How do we build, or how do we make uh, uh, data-driven decisions? How do we build models for data? How do we analyze and visualize data? So it, generally when I see a data scientist, that means that they are more focused on the, on the technical aspect in terms of analysis, coding, machine learning, things like that. Okay, so while we're on that subject, can you expand on what machine learning actually is? Yeah, um, so I can give the broad definition, um, which, you know, m machine learning is, is so, sort of what I, what I hinted at before. It sort of allows machines to, uh, to learn and reason by themselves from information from data that we that we give to them so for example um, you know we might give it an image uh, of a puppy or something like that and we ask it to reason about that image you know we can ask it to tell us how cute that puppy is uh, I, that's maybe a bit beyond their abilities right now or maybe not a scientific enough application but I think we're getting there uh, <laughs> I think people might argue that's a legitimate scientific application. <laughs> I, I know many dog lovers. I, th I think it would be. I, I would. I would love for Google to, you know, for me able to be the sort by cuteness of puppies on, <laughs> on Google. Google my search. But no, really. I mean, uh, uh, you know, a great application of machine learning. That I think many of us uh, know is if we use Facebook. Um, you know, whenever we put up a new picture, and it automatically recommends us and all of our friends on there to tag them. They're using machine learning to detect our faces there, and that's because they have, you know, for me, uh, almost a decade of pictures of me, um, and they know what I look like, and they know how tall I am, and they know all these other things about me, which is a little bit creepy. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, and, and they can use that information to, to see whenever they see a new picture, hey, that's Randy. Yeah, so we're kind of on the, the subject of things being vaguely creepy. This idea of big data and um, so when people say big data they're just talking about generally being able to acquire lots and lots of information from pretty much every facet of people things environment and so on right. and I guess that the next step is what to do with the data right because the, the I think a lot of people would assume that if you can collect a lot of data on a subject then um, this is it, we're going to be able to fix this particular issue because now we know all the things. Right, exactly. But um, that's not how it works. Yeah, no, definitely not. And I mean, I think that's why um, data science, you know, data science and data scientists are so sought after um, because, you know, this, this big data term came around, it hit the scene, it sounded sexy to the execs and everything. And they said, yes, let's collect all the data and that's going to solve all our problems. Um, when in reality, just collecting a large amount of data isn't going to solve all your problems. You can't just compute basic statistics off of that. You need someone who can reason about it. Um, you need someone who can actually model it. And, and oftentimes, you don't really even need big data to solve complex data problems. You know, it's, 
um, uh, Jason, my boss, you know, he he says it's it's not about big data; it's about complex data. You know, mm-hmm. that's 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 where the really interesting stuff is. Um, and so, for me personally, I'm I'm less interested in, in really big data. I'm interested in more complex data. And I, I think more and more people are going to have that that realization um, once they collect their hordes of data and realize there's not much to learn from it. Yeah. I think one of the, the best examples, which is kind of very pertinent to biologists everywhere, was the Human Genome Project, where they're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to sequence the entire thing, we'll know the whole code, and then they looked at it and realized, actually, there aren't very many proteins that make us us. Right, exactly. Which is, it's kind of disappointing and also not very helpful if you think that you're going to be able to map out everything about us right. just by knowing the, the alphabet. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, ne- the next big initiative there is, is to try to map out the brain, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's what they were yeah, I was thinking pushing for. Um, hopefully that doesn't turn into another uh, partially failed fishing expedition. Quite, quite. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that it is useful in the sense that we do have kind of these, all of these codes for proteins that are important for us to know, but... Yeah. It just didn't yield what people wanted. What I they promised, which yes. in in my own field, that's that's an ongoing issue, right? You know, I'm an AI researcher. We love to promise what's to come, but <laughs> as far as what we actually deliver, it often falls short. Yeah, um, I think that's probably true of science in general. <laughs> uh, surrounded by cancer scientists yeah, here, they probably indeed. know the drill. <laughs> um, so if we switch a little bit to kind of the the stuff that you share in your blogs and on Twitter. Um, this is not directly related to your research, and I guess you do a lot of it for fun. <laughs> right, it's, it's become a bit of a, a hobby, a, a data tinkering hobby. Yeah, so um, what I found really cool is that you, you start sifting through the kinds of things that you do analysis on, and they vary from this very cool kind of graphic of all the national parks and how best to hit them through the US to you know, how long a man lasts in the bedroom. I thought that was particularly funny. Um, so for no. all of these things, where do, you, where do you get the information from? And what kind of compels you to choose one thing as opposed to something else in order to look at it? Yeah, um, so oftentimes mo- most of my projects are, are just motivated by just random conversations that I have with people. I mean, that's how the how long do you, how long does the average guy last in bed project started, <laughs> um, and then and then I found out there's actual legit research on that, you know, uh, which is very interesting. Um. <laughs> Actually, I, I can I can talk about that a little bit. It's it's it seems to have been a very uh, awkward data set to collect. They, they recruited couples uh, for, for this experiment, and they actually had them record all, like, all of their sexual acts for like a month or two. And they had to write down the time that they started, and then they, as soon as he penetrated her, he had to start a timer. And then as soon as they finished, they stopped the timer, and they had to record that time. Yeah. So uh, would that not affect the data somewhat? <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, there were some data points in there that seemed, you know, really implausible. You know, like 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 a guy lasting several hours. You know, and you're just like, come on, really? You know, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. other way around. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, uh, several hours just seems impractical. Uh, anyway. But anyway, that was a huge distraction. <laughs> 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 I was that that was just a very entertaining project that I went through recently. Um, yeah, so it, it starts just a lot from, you know, um, when I get together for lunch with my lab mates or something like that, we talk about something random, and then usually at some point we go, oh, I don't know the answer to that, and we'll try to Google it. 
Um, and if we do, can't easily Google the answer, usually that'll bug me until the weekend, and then I'll you know start a weekend project to try to find is there data related to this? Um, how can we answer this from a, a data centered um, you know a data centered point of view? Um, and 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 you know of course I'm not content just like answering it myself and be like aha I know now. You know I think it's also good to make a resource where people who have like-minded, sometimes weird questions, um, you know, so they can Google them and find the answer as well. Um, other times, it, it, I just run across a data set that's too cool to pass up or too interesting to pass up. Um, or sometimes I run across an idea, you know, um, a reporter will, will, email, or will email me and say, you know, hey, uh, I really like this project, it, it, and it made me think about this other project, and that's um, how the road trip project started. Um, where basically I had solved Waldo um, uh -huh. and then we said hey can we apply this to road trips as well and that was just too cool of an idea to pass up so you know I had to do a, a blog post on that but mostly I guess my point is that most of my projects are just um, me following my whimsy you know just doing it for fun but do you ever come up with anything that you find is then a real kind of practical application somewhere um, well, I mean, arguably the, the road trip uh, posts have been somewhat practical. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though they are really grandiose road trips, right? You need to take yeah, off yeah, several yeah. months to go on them. Um, and, and for me, it was just kind of a fun, cool problem. Um, but it turns out there's a, there's a surprising number of people who want to go on road trips like this. And mm -hmm. they found that post to be useful, at least as a starting point, you know? They, might, they may not want to go to all the same parks or... Uh, same stops. They may not want to follow the exact same route, you know, which is optimal according to Google. Um, but it gives them an idea of where to start, and then they can add their own their own places to go from there. So I'd say that post has certainly been practical in some senses. Um, I would argue that um, at least once once I become a father, solving Waldo is going to be pretty useful mm -hmm. uh, to impress my kids. <laughs> um, you know, just so I can show off how much faster I can find Waldo. Than them, you know, I think they're going to be pretty impressed with that. So, I'm hoping it's it's it's, it's a long haul, though. We'll see. <laughs> you briefly touched on the subject of artificial intelligence and so on. Um, now, the way most people picture it is sentient robots, and they're going to destroy us. Yeah. But presumably, it has a larger meaning to you and the work that you do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's actually. Um, it's a little frustrating to me whenever whenever you bring up artificial intelligence you know people say oh it's just this thing that's gonna you know become self-aware and, and try to destroy all humans or take all of our jobs or whatever else and I mean honestly I think I think AI is, is really going to be transformative you know to our lives it already arguably has been transformative to our lives um, but in very small ways you know very focused applications um, I mean, for example, you know, I, I consider the Uber app that a lot of us use to be a very basic AI. You know, it does what a human used to do automatically. It, it matches you to a nearby driver to go to the next point, you know. Um, and so I think we're going to be increasingly seeing that, where we're going to see small AI applications that are really going to be transformative for us. I don't know, I don't know if we're ever really going to see like this self-aware sentient AI that you know is going to solve all the world's problems but I think or AI, destroy us or destroy us I mean some may argue that destroying us will solve all of the world's the, problems the, that's a fair but, point. <laughs> but um, anyway yeah I think it's going to be you know it's going to be a, it's going to be small it's going to be gradual 
but you know, eventually we are going to see AI really become a core part of our lives in the very near future. Arturo has a question for you that's kind of related to all of these things. Uh, the first one is, uh, what do you think about Tesla self-driving cars and the first kind of related deaths of the, a few months ago? Um, well, obviously, I feel very sad about the about the deaths. You know, it's it's very it's very sad to hear um, when when lives are lost, especially to new technology. But overall, I, I am very excited for self-driving cars. Um, you know, I, I recently heard news that that I, I keep bringing up Uber. I, they're not sponsoring me, I swear. Yep. <laughs> um, but U- Uber launched. Maybe uh, they could think about it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Give me a call. Yeah. Quite. <laughs> now, um, uh, they they launched self-driving cars in in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, just this past week, and I'm I'm very excited for the idea of, of that. You know, I think um, I think in the long term, especially if we can tune self-driving cars, um, to, you know, they can be safer than humans. I mean, some people argue they already are safer than human drivers, and sometimes the drivers I get on I get on Uber and Lyft, I, I do think that a self-driving car would be safer than some of those drivers. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm, ve- I'm very excited for that advancement in technology. Um, I think it's I think it's going to be tremendously helpful. I'm a bit worried about what's going to happen to all the Uber drivers, though. You know, what, where where are they going to go? Much like every profession that becomes automated, right? Yeah, As, I mean, that, that, and that's that's one thing I mean about AI is that it is going to be slowly taking many of our jobs. You know, um, many many things that we consider to be things that can only be done by us will soon actually be done by by AI and by computers and yeah that's which is an interesting thing to ponder you know what what if we were all put out of jobs you know <laughs> what what would, what what would we do what would you do without a job right. <laughs> retire just relax yeah i think <laughs> even my hobbies of science outreach would fall by the wayside because <laughs> presumably they could do that too so next up david says what can machines learn and what can't they learn? And then related to that, can we train computers to be doctors? And will we need human doctors in 20, 50, 100 years time? Wow, that's a, that's a really big question. <laughs> <laughs> what can computers learn? Right, right now, I mean, computers can, I mean, the most basic thing they can learn is associations between things. And, um, you know, that, that comes at many different scales, you know, with, with um, sort of computer algorithms that are meant to classify. They can look at pixels and images, for example, and tell us what's in those images. They can find, um, you know, relationships between things, for example, shopping habits. You know, if you ever shop on Amazon or related websites, they always have these smart recommendations for you. Um, And that's because they're able to mine what you're looking, or what you've been looking at and what you've been buying and relate that to what other people have been buying and, and, and make recommendations that way. So that's a big thing that they can learn. So one of the things that came up recently, and this tells you something about my taste in TV shows, we were watching an episode of The Good Wife and there's a case between a guy who's in a self-driving car and has an accident with a woman and they go through the case and one of the things they talk about is um, the, the fact that cars and humans driving at the same time is not going to work because the computers say, I will stick to this rule. I come to a stop sign And then when all the other cars roll to a stop at that stop sign, I will move. Except humans don't drive like that. So they had to put in this kind of, this degree of error to compensate for the humans. Um, So it seems like that's one thing that 
potentially they wouldn't pick up on necessarily? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there, there's it's it's definitely hard for a computer to plan for uh, the unexpected. I mean, I, I would argue that's the same for people though too. It's hard for us this to plan true. for the unexpected. Um, we try to, you know, with things like insurance and, and just generally being risk averse. But um, yeah, of course, computers. You know, it, it, I mean, it's just the same if if we want to train a, a robot to be able to um, handle any situation on Mars. You know, but autonomously, um, we have to train it in potentially every situation that it would run into there. And if it runs into an unknown situation, well, it's going to need human intervention. Um, and another thing that came to mind that perhaps computers can't learn on their own is, is maybe uh, semi-related to this, which is like ethics. You know, um, computers, they tend to learn to be, at least nowadays, they tend to learn to be efficient. Um, and they tend to learn to, you know, solve the problem quickly, but maybe they, they don't think about, is that the right way to solve the problem? So unless we explicitly program that in, that's, that's a, a challenge for them, I would say. They don't naturally have, you know, they, they, they don't sort of grow up in the culture that we grew up in that imposes things like ethics, so. If you had, presumably, a way of them growing up with you, I think a, a funny example of that is, what's the name of the film with the South African robots. Oh man, I remember that. Chappie. Chappie, yeah. Like, so that, that's an example of it effectively being a baby and then yes. gets kidnapped by gangsters and becomes a gangster robot. Right. It, Chappie is a very so cool. cute movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if we had a robot that sort of did learn like a baby learns, you know, that, that actually grew up and went through this sort of learning phase, I think perhaps, you know, yeah, faster. I mean, that's, and that's kind of what they had in Chappie, right? He learned very quickly, but... Um, you know, nowadays, typically, this a lot of the system, a lot of the AI systems we're interacting with, they sort of, they learn and then they get locked in to what they do. And sometimes we experiment with things that do online learning. You know, that process the information that's as it's coming in. But we also saw what happened with Microsoft Tay. Um, you know, when people started trolling it, and you know, it was learning from from talking to people, and so people started, you know, being racist and being bigoted, and Microsoft Tay learned to be racist and bigoted. So there's, you know, I, I think there's still some limitations there, you know, <laughs> that <laughs> uh, to learning in computers. So I saw I saw a very interesting project um, out, of, out of MIT that was trying to, to gauge people on some of these really, really tough sort of ethical questions. It, actually, it all kind of ties together with, with um, autonomous cars, too where uh, you take a quiz and you have to answer like 10 or so questions and they, they ask you really, really tough questions like let's say you're, you, know, you have these people driving an autonomous car and the brakes go out. There's people crossing the street and um, the only option is to either swerve and kill the people in the car, you know, because they crash into a barricade or something, or it keeps driving straight and it kills the people crossing the street. And there was just some really, really ethical dilemmas that they present you with there, you know, like, what if there's, you know, Olympic athletes in the car and just like your regular Joe walking, walking across the street? Who should die? You choose. And I was <laughs> like, whoa! <laughs> you know, I could, but I mean, those are some sort of things we have to think about mm -hmm. in terms of AI. If we're going to have autonomous cars, you know, how what what decision do we make there? Yeah. In the terrible case that we have to make that decision, I can't even make that decision. Quite. So. No, you wouldn't want to have to. Oh, did you want me to answer the thing about replacing doctors? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think 
I don't I don't know if I necessarily see machines completely replacing doctors anytime soon. I, I mean, I think I whenever I get asked this question, I always think about um, the movie Idiocracy, um, where you know he was coming in to get a physical or something like that, and then the, you know there's just like this guy sitting there. He's like, okay, put this plug in your mouth, put this plug in your butt, and he's like. <laughs> Oh wait, no! I got them mixed up. Switch them around, you know. <laughs> and then this the machine just sort of analyzes you based off of that and finds out what's wrong with you or something. Um, but I think I think that with with medicine, there's a much more personal touch to it. Um, you know, more than just diagnosing people. I think people come to interact with the doctor and and you know have them explain what's going on in a way that I don't know if a computer could do right now. You know, I mean. We interact with computers quite regularly. Whenever we call up the phone, we get an automated answering service or whatever else. But I don't know about you, I immediately get annoyed at those things. You uh-huh. know, I start spamming zero. Come on, get me to a person. And I think we would run into the same thing if we tried to completely replace doctors with, um, you know, and this is, of course, assuming that we could get an AI that could perform better than a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, of course, there's all kinds of ethical issues with that of, you know, what if the doctor makes a poor diagnosis? Who's fault is it mm-hmm. uh, yeah so I, I, I don't see you know I, I honestly see AI um, being more of a, a supplement rather than you know something that's going to replace um, at least some professions so switching more to the humanistic aspect of AI and Arturo is asking about um, more movies here uh, what do you think about the movies her and ex machina um, I actually really, really enjoyed the movie Her. Um, that that was that movie was quite a, quite a treat to me um, because it, it was a, it was a really fascinating look at what it would be like if we did have a sentient AI. How would how would that look? How would that work? What would happen? I mean, um, so that that was a really fun fun movie to watch um, and also just to ponder like how would we interact with with a real AI? You know, like would we fall in love with it or something? I was a little disappointed at the end where, well, actually, I shouldn't spoil it for people who haven't watched the movie. I'll just, I'll just leave it there. I was Maybe disappointed we can put in a spoiler end. alert. Okay, yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, you know, at the at the end where you know the the AI that he fell in love with sort of went off with all the other AIs because it had transcended beyond you know what what humans were capable of and it had to go find some some you know some place and some other AIs that were more interesting um, that was that was a bit of a disappointing ending to me but other, overall though that was that was a really really neat movie we had a question from David he says that Elon Musk wor- worries about the singularity does it keep you awake at night <laughs> first of all can you explain what the singularity is Sure, I can explain. Uh, I can explain the singularity. So the singularity is this idea um, that uh, we will eventually get an AI that can sort of self-improve, um, and eventually the AI will be able to self-improve enough to where um, it'll improve itself beyond any capabilities that we ever imagined, and sort of almost almost transcend anything we ever imagined to be able to solve again all the world's problems and and and. Uh, yeah, that's the basic idea of the singularity, um, and and I certainly it certainly does not keep me awake at night at all. Um, you know, as as an AI researcher, and I, I like to think that I, I keep up on the field quite a bit. And I I, I mean, I kind of go back to what I was talking about earlier, where I, I am hesitant to make predictions about what'll happen. You know, a decade or 50 years into the future, but 
At the state of where we are in AI research right now, I find it a little laughable that we're going to find this self-improving AI that's going to just suddenly transcend um, within my lifetime. I don't, I don't see that. It would be amazing if it happened. Yeah. But um, I'm not banking on it right now. Okay. Um, but ask me again in 10 years and we'll see. <laughs> so what does keep you awake at night? This, I, I, I feel like I have a really disappointing and dirty response, which is that sometimes just my research keeps me awake at night. I was about trying to, say- to solve a problem, you know? But like, it, it's, the, it's the worst... I mean, it's a good sign. It's a sign that I have a job that's really right for me, that at the end of the day, when 5 o'clock rolls around, I'm like, ah, oh, man, I don't want to go home. And sometimes I stay up at, light, at night just pondering, you know, how, how do I solve this problem, or why isn't this thing working? Uh, you know, I've, I've literally had dreams where I, where I looked through my code and debugged it in my dreams and woke up with the answer, you know? And it, <laughs> but it actually, it was real, because I've had those dreams, and I wake up, and it's an absolute, it's like... There was nothing based on reality whatsoever, but I was so pleased with myself in the dream. <laughs> I, mean, uh, oh, I mean, it's just an added bonus to actually solve a real problem. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's definitely satisfying to just solve a, a really hard coding problem anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so cool. I think that's a happy dream for any programmer. <laughs> yeah. um, so Kim tweeted to us all the way from Ireland. Hi, Kim. We hope you're doing well. Um, Hi, Kim. She said, if you could push AI beyond its current abilities, what's the most and least practical application you would like to see? I can at least answer the most practical one. Okay. Um, I would say the the most practical application of AI that I would love to see um, is is sort of an AI scientist. I think that would be really, really cool if, if we could have a scientist, you know, uh, an AI that can sort of watch what we're doing as a collective, you know, and, uh, as scientists and and reason about that and ponder how can we, you know, push the boundaries of, of what we're currently thinking about as scientists in, in all kinds of fields. Um, I think that would be really amazing. Um, and perhaps lead to the singularity if we got there, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're sort of working on a small-time project like that at, um, at where, where I work, but um, I don't think it's going to be reasoning about all of science. It's focusing on just, you know, bioinformatics in, in particular. But I'm, that's something I think would be very, very cool to think about is, is you know, can we have sort of a colleague that's, that's, uh, that's an AI that'll suggest experiments to us, will suggest analyses to us, all kinds of things like that. That would be very cool. But wouldn't that just, in my case, turn me into a monkey? I mean, you know, I do the experiments, the thing does the thinking for me. <laughs> At which point you could probably have a robot to do my job as well. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I would see it more as a collaborator, you know. Um, I mean, we, we don't necessarily have to do exactly what it says. I mean, just the same as we never do exactly what our PI says <laughs> in, um, <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I think I think it would be really interesting to have like an AI scientist collaborator like that, not but not necessarily just barking orders at all of us measly humans. Yeah, um, I think one thing that would, would be kind of potentially more interesting is how to get scientists to work better with each other. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, the guys here all know about working across disciplines. That seems like one of the hardest because nobody really seems to understand. 
completely what the other is trying to achieve. Right. And it feels like if you had someone as an intermediary, perhaps that would <laughs> a help. A translator, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, exactly. the, I mean, I found the hardest part of. Um, interdisciplinary research is, is, you know, I come from a computer science background. If I want to collaborate with an evolutionary biologist or a bio, uh, uh, you know, bioinformatics researcher or whatever else, it's learning that language. You know, it's uh, there's there's even if we're all speaking in English, there's still literally a language barrier there where we have to learn not only how we talk about the problems, but how we think about the problems. You know, and that's often some in some fields there's a very large paradigm shift. So. It could perhaps help to have a translator there to say, ah, okay, you know, we're interfacing a computer scientist with an evolutionary biologist. Here's how they can communicate. Um, David had another question, which is, he has questions. He has many questions. <laughs> um, he says, is artificial life too artificial to teach us anything of interest about real life? Man, that's a hard-hitting question. Yeah. Um, like I, you might even have to explain what, how you understood the question. <laughs> <laughs> so the general idea of artificial life is that we can sort of abstract the processes that are going on in the real world and simulate them in a computer in some way and hopefully gain some broader understanding um, about the real world from this more simplistic simulation. Um, and so I do think that um, probably, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that uh, there's certainly some artificial life experiments that are too abstract or not founded enough in the real world to really teach us much of anything other than, wow, this is cool, which honestly, that's fine. You know, it's, it, is, it is fun, and I think part of, part of what draws some of us to science is that we just get to do work on projects that are, wow, that's cool. Yeah. In, <laughs> in some senses, I feel like that was my PhD. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think I think as long as as long as you're making artificial life experiments that are grounded in you know the theory of how we understand the world or basing it on data you know that can sort of teach us on how the system works, I think that can absolutely teach us something about the system. You know, we can at least make predictions that can guide um, the definitely more expensive uh, real world experiments if we're studying another if we're studying a, a real world system. Um, yeah, ab absolutely. I, I mean, I think I think artificial life has its has its place there, um, but it definitely has to be grounded in in reality in some important ways. Sometimes when I play cards against humanity and we're missing a a person to make it more interesting, I use um, a large scale figure of Godzilla uh, as as a playing character. Um, so he <laughs> he gets cards and he. Um, he plays those cards, the cards that, that I give him, and sometimes he wins. Is that, <laughs> is that artificial intelligence? That <laughs> uh, it, it depends. How, how does he play those cards, and uh, how does he choose cards? Randomly. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I definitely can't say that's artificial intelligence. Um, <laughs> Um, but I mean that does get at a, a kind of neat broader point is that sometimes we can um, pr make really stupid programs that look intelligent um, and 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 uh, pretend to be AI and I think that's actually uh, a lot of what we see now in AI applications they're actually 
very, very simplistic, you know, rules that they program in, but it, man, it makes it look really smart, right? Like if you, if you talk to Siri on your iPhone and you say, tell me a joke, you know, it tells you a joke. Mm-hmm. And, and if you didn't know that they had just programmed that joke in there, you'd be like, oh my God, is this, you know, is this a real yeah. living thing? It's telling me a joke right now. Yeah, so um, certainly, I, I don't think it's an AI, but you know that that, that actually <laughs> makes me really ponder now. If anyone has looked at applying AI and machine learning to Cards Against Humanity, uh, can we have an expert player? <laughs> oh, we look forward to the next blog post. So thank you again so much for coming out to speak to us. We look forward to seeing more of the fun stuff that you produce. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. second year of my PhD, um, I was working like a lunatic because I had, you know, gone through a bad Michigan winter and I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. Um, and so I was getting my first big paper published on, you know, studying animal behavior using artificial life models. And it was very exciting, you know, we got it through the review process and um, a few months after we submitted it, um, the reviews came back and they asked for some more experiments. And that's completely reasonable. You know, they, they were completely reasonable experiments. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll run them. Um, and then I started re- even just rerunning the base experiments that I reported on in the paper. And my simulation wasn't working anymore. And I wasn't reproducing the results of in my paper. And you know, if you've been in grad school, if you've published a research paper, this was like nightmare mode. After a week of freaking out and digging into code, it turns out I had made some really silly optimizations to my code throughout those three months that had introduced a bug. And thank goodness I used version control. That saved my life. But um, yeah, that just goes to show that um, uh, science isn't as clean as we think. I'm paranoia as your friend. Paranoia is absolutely your friend. You've just been listening to a Two Scientist podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. What cannot they learn? What cannot they learn? That sounds like Yoda. (laughs) Uh.